Last Sunday I shared with you how beginning with verse 9 of chapter 8, or chapter, yeah, Paul begins a, a personal application to the Roman Christians and to Christians everywhere. And his point is that despite the law of sin and death that continues to work in and through our as yet unredeemed bodies, and despite the reality of our continuing struggle with the enslaving power of sin, because we do struggle with it, and that struggle is with sin. Paul's point, and I love it, because I struggle with sin on a daily basis. His point is we don't need to despair. God has blessed us in that He's given us the gift of grace, second only to the gift of justification through His blood. And we're told that you and I can obtain victory, but it only takes place through the Spirit. We're not going to be victorious by dwelling in the self-help section of the local bookstore. We're not going to be victorious with the power of positive thinking. I used to have a professor, a friend, who uh, he was from Oxford, and he had that Oxford accent. And uh, I remember him one day saying, you know, mateys, that's what he called us students. He said, you know, mateys, when I think about the teaching of Paul, I find Paul quite appealing and peel quite appalling. And he was talking about the fact that there are times that it really doesn't matter how positive we might think about something. Unless we have the Spirit, we're not going to have that victory. Victorious living only comes when we are living in the Spirit and the Spirit is dwelling in us. Go back with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and following. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, you probably notice that there were some things that I emphasized because in these verses, in verse 9 and verse 11, twice, twice, Paul repeats the phrase, if the Spirit dwells in you. Now we saw back in chapter 7, that indwelling sin. That's right. Remember how in twice, verse 17 and verse 20, Paul said, it's no longer I, that, but sin that dwells within me. Indwelling sin is a part of our human nature. However, the privilege of being children of God is that we also have the indwelling spirit to fight and subdue that indwelling sin that's within us. 
Again, Jesus promised that the Spirit would live with us and would be with us. And now, in fulfillment of that promise, every true Christian has received the Spirit so that our our body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed when they said, well, man, must have been a powerful sermon. They, they, it says they were pricked to the heart and they said, what can we do to be saved? Remember what Peter said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for... You, you, you cannot imagine how important that little word is. And it's three letters in the Greek also. Gamma Alpha Rho. Gar. For. For the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You confess your sins. You repent of your previous way of life. And you submit obediently in baptism. And Peter says you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 6, Paul reminded us, that all of those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We bury the old. We rise a new person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now this is where I shared with you at that point from the writing of John Stott this idea of the double condition. The idea of having a dying body and a living spirit. Here, I wanted to give you the John Stott's quote in full. Here's what he says in in that writing. What, however, is the cause of this double condition, namely a dying body and a living spirit? The answer lies in the repeated because which attributes death to sin and life to righteousness. The double condition of our victorious living is that while we have to have a dying body, we must bury the old self in order to walk in newness of life. We also need a living spirit in order to be victorious. We have to die. We have to mortify ourselves. It's part of our responsibility. You see, I disagree vehemently with those people who say there's nothing you can do. There are all kinds of things that the Scripture says that we are to be doing. We can't earn our salvation But there are all kinds of obligations that are placed upon us. And here is one of them. The responsibility to die to sin so that we can live. It's the same teaching that is found in Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 to 10. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. That's a command by the way. It's an imperative in the Greek. You put to death 
What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And now he starts hitting real close to home. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And here comes the life and righteousness part. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have responsibility. So here's my question for you this morning to begin. What does it mean to you that Christ is in you. I had a friend in the ministry of a large congregation who asked all of the members of the congregation to remove the bumper stickers that they had made and put out that had the name of the church on it. The elders were in total agreement because that week one of those cars with one of the church's bumper stickers on it caused another car to have a horrible accident and the person left the scene of the accident. Now, was that the church's fault? No. But did it give a message about the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. What does it mean that Christ is living in you? Where are you taking Christ? A couple of years ago, we had one of our camp deans make little pictures of Jesus and had them laminated. I... Adam, was that one of the high school weeks? Did you all get a flat little Jesus? I don't remember. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was that or C's junior high week. But the idea was, here is a copy of your Jesus in an image, a graphic form. Now, take Jesus with you everywhere you go and think about it with your little image of flat Jesus. What's it mean that Christ lives in us? I mean, I know, if nothing else, these verses should teach us that there are several different expressions that are synonyms. I mean, we've already seen that uh, being in the Spirit is the same as having the Spirit in us. And now we note that the Spirit of God is also called the Spirit of Christ. And that to have the Spirit of Christ in us is to have Christ in us. Uh, what I'm, not, I'm not trying to confuse the three persons of the Godhead by identifying the Father with the Son and the Son with the Spirit. Rather, it's to emphasize that although... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are eternally inseparable, eternally distinct. They share the same essence and the same will. What the Father does, He does through the Son. Jesus said that. And what the Son does, He does through the Spirit. One writer one time referred to it as the divine humility. 
You say, well, who is God? And God says, hey, don't look at me, look at my son. And you, you say to Jesus, who's God? And you say, well, you know, it's not about me. I'm here to show you the Father. And the Spirit says, hey, it's not about me. I'm just here to tell you the truth about both of them. Kind of a divine humility. As I shared last week, the affirmation that we have the Spirit in us is the distinguishing mark of being a part of the family of God. And as Christ's people, it has consequences. Paul proceeds to indicate the two major consequences of the Spirit's indwelling. And the first he describes in terms of life. We saw that in verses 10 to 11, just as we were closing last Sunday. And the second is in terms of a debt or an obligation. That's right. You and I have a debt. We have an obligation to do all that we can to live according to the Spirit and to present our bodies as living sacrifices and to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And that brings us up to where we left off last Sunday. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. That's the Aramaic. Father, that's the Greek. I'm a father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. May God add His blessing to our reading of this portion of His Word. So here's the image to help us. Oh, I forgot to finish reading. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The reason I mentally slip there was because my sermon actually ends with the idea of how we're going to be glorifying God and when, when I saw that verse of glorifying God I mentally said oh I'm at the end okay but here's the image there are many times that I want to tell myself well, I can't do that 
I can't, I can't do it. What Paul is trying to say to us is that if we allow the Spirit to have control of our lives, we can begin to start changing our I can'ts to I can because of Christ and the Spirit that lives in me. And that's why Paul starts off with where he does. We have a responsibility. We have an obligation. In verses 12 and 13, he tells us that our obligation is that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. And did you notice that Paul, at this point, Paul doesn't say our debt is to share the gospel with the world. He does that back in chapter 1, verse 14, when he talks about our obligation to preach to both the Jews and the Gentiles. No. Here, he's focusing on our obligation to live a righteous life. I hope you understand that you will have far more influence on the people that you live with, the people that you work with, your neighbors. You'll have far more influence on, on them by living by living the Christian life than you will by any words that you might happen to say. We don't have an obligation to the sinful nature to live according to us. He says that in verse 12. It has no claim on us. We owe it nothing. One of the hardest things that I had to learn over the last two and a half years was that if my body tells me I'm hungry, I don't have to feed it. If I mentally know that I have eaten all that I need nutritionally for that day, when my body says, I'm hungry, I don't have to eat. I can go get some water and drink. My physical body has no control over me as a person. I control it. I make the decisions. Our obligation is to the Spirit. To live according to the Spirit's desires and dictates. And I'm not going to tell you that's easy. Paul said himself, the things that I know that I should be doing, I'm not. And the things that I am doing, I know I shouldn't be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul's argument, though, seems to be this. If the indwelling Spirit has given us life, which He has, verse 10, if we have been given life, we cannot possibly live according to the flesh because that is the way that leads to death. How can we possess life and court death simultaneously? You see, such an inconsistency between who we are and how we behave is unthinkable. And the world recognizes that. What's the number one complaint or critique or uh, whatever word you want to use the world has of the church? Oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Because we're saying one thing, we're living a different way. I heard prejudicial statements 
made this week over the fact that tomorrow is a national holiday. Prejudicial racial statements. And I'm sure glad that my son-in-law and my grandchildren didn't hear those people who profess to be Christians talking about how tomorrow shouldn't be a holiday because of that black man. Yeah, I'm, that gets my that gets my anger up. If we're not living the Christian life, we're going to have no influence on our neighbors and those around us, except bad influence. And verse thirteen sets the option before us as a solemn life and death alternative. And it's made more, even more impressive by Paul's renewed resort to direct address. For if you live, he says, according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 13 thus becomes a very significant verse on the often neglected topic of the process of putting to death the body's misdeeds. So the next thing Paul develops then for us is our connection. He says we're children of God. Listen again to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And what's immediately noteworthy about this paragraph is that each of its four verses have a reference to God's people designated by His children or His sons, which of course includes daughters. And that in each of these, the privileged status is related to the work of the Holy Spirit. Only in verse 16 is it specifically said that the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. And yet the whole paragraph concerns the witness He bears. That is, the assurance He gives us. And, and Paul assembles four pieces of evidence. First, the Spirit leads us into holiness. And verse 14 is linked to verse 13 by the con conjunction because. Verse 14 clarifies verse 13 by changing the imagery. Those who through the Spirit put the body's misdeeds to death are now those who are led by the Spirit. While those who have entered into the fullness of life are now the sons of God. And both of those clarifications are important. Secondly, in our relationship to God, He replaces fear with freedom. This Paul attributes to the nature of the Spirit that we've received. And he uses the aorist tense. You say, well, Chauncey, you keep talking about these tenses of verbs. Is that really that important? Yes, yeah, that important. It's important to you. If you tell me tomorrow at 5 o'clock, Chauncey, I want to meet you at... McDonald's and I say to you I was there yesterday at 5 o'clock it matters if it's future tense or past tense doesn't it and it matters that Paul used what's called the aorist tense because when you look at the aorist tense he's talking about something that happened in the past at a point in time and what he's talking about is 
When he says, you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sunshine. He's, he's talking about our baptism. F.F. Bruce reminds us that we must interpret, interpret the implications of our adoption in terms of the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day and not our own. Listen to what he's written. The term adoption may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, but in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no way inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. Both here in verse 15 and in Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 and following, Paul uses the imagery of slavery and freedom with each to contrast the two eras, the old age and the new, are so our pre and post conversion situations. And the slavery of the old led to fear, especially to God as our judge. The freedom of the new age gives us boldness to approach God as our Father. So everything's changed. True, we're still slaves. Slaves of Christ. Slaves of God, chapter 6, verse 22. Slaves of righteousness, chapter 6, verse 18. But these slaveries, far from being incompatible with freedom, are the very essence of freedom. Freedom, not fear, now rules in our life. Thirdly, he says, in our prayers, he prompts us to call God Father. Side by side, the Aramaic Abba, the Greek Pater. Let's go back to the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane, praying earnestly, Jesus prayed, Abba Father. Fourthly, he says that the Spirit is the first fruits of our, in heaven, our heavenly inheritance. Now we are children, so now we are heirs and co-heirs. So the radical holiness, the fearless freedom, the family prayerfulness, and the hope of glory are four characteristics that we as children of God should have dwelling in us by the dwelling of the Spirit of, of God. Which brings me to our final point. And that is our freedom. And that is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What prompted this development was clearly Paul's allusion to our sharing in the sufferings and glory of Christ. Verse 17. Suffering as a Christian is inevitable. We have never been promised an easy road. We have never been promised a rose garden. In fact, we've been promised a crown of thorns. If you are not suffering, 
you need to look again at how well you are doing living the Christian life. Because if you are living the Christian life, you are going to be persecuted. So, go back and read the final section of this chapter again. Suffering and glory is the theme all the way to verse 27. First, Paul speaks of the sufferings and glory of God's creation and then the sufferings and glory of God's children. And we need to understand that the sufferings and the glory belong together. Biblically speaking, they cannot be separated. They did in the experience of Christ. They went together. And they do in the experience of His people also. Paul stresses that it is only after we have suffered a little while that we will enter into the glory of, in Christ. Notice also, by the way, Paul's three statements about creation. In respect to the past, future, and present. He says, first, creation was subjected to frustration. I think he's talking about when sin came into the world through Adam and Eve's choice. Secondly, the creation itself will be liberated in the future. And he says that both in terms of a negative liberated from its bondage to decay and positive, it'll be liberated into glorious freedom. By the way, that's a theme throughout the Bible. The expectation that this world, that nature itself, will be renewed is integral to the Old Testament prophetic vision of the Messianic age, especially in Psalms and Isaiah. The New Testament writers do not take up the details in poetic imagery, but Jesus spoke of the new birth of the world that's coming. Peter of the restoration of all things. Paul here of its liberation and elsewhere of its reconciliation. And John, the passage we read in Revelation last Sunday, writes of the new heaven and the new earth coming. I know we sang today, when we all get to heaven, that's okay. We'll get there when it comes here because Revelation says he's bringing heaven to us. And God's going to dwell with us. But also Paul notes that creation, present tense, has been groaning right up to the present time. And I don't think anybody here can deny that creation is groaning in pain. Seeking the glory that only God the Father can bring. For creation and for us as a family of God. And so that brings me to my closing challenge. Notice where Paul goes. In the last 12 verses of Romans 8, the apostle soars to sublime heights that are unequaled anywhere else in the New Testament. We're to live victorious. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Everything that he's talked about in chapter 8. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave up for all of us, gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So here's the 
message of chapter 8 in a nutshell. There is freedom from judgment. The chapter began. There is now therefore no condemnation. There is freedom from defeat. We can claim victory. There's freedom from discouragement. God is with us. And there's freedom from fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today again so urgently needing to hear your word and make the appropriate changes. Forgive us for thinking that we can talk the Christian talk without walking the Christian walk. Help us to be students of your word so that the Spirit can guide us to truth. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.